The only way that you can preserve peace is to prepare for war. Below the Line, the Federal Election 2022, brought to you by La Trobe University with The Conversation. Sporting codes are focused on making sport inclusive, fair and welcoming for all. They're not independents. They're anti-liberal groupies. Welcome to Below the Line, a 2022 federal election podcast special. From polls to party spin to the policies, we're trying to bring you a limited edition podcast free of party media and populist lines through this vital election campaign. It's brought to you by La Trobe University, together with the website The Conversation. I'm John Fain from the University of Melbourne, and I've dusted off the microphone to join political scientists, Professor Zanika Gower. Simon Jackman from the University of Sydney, both of them, and Andrea Carson from La Trobe to cut through the election noise. We'll try and bring you two episodes a week and unpack the election issues that matter to you. Today, we're going to look at the disconnect between politics as a trade and politicians as a class on the one hand, and politics as a service to the public, genuinely a public service on the other. And that brings us plainly into the clash of cultures between current professional politicians and the new independents who are vying for control, the balance of power, in a hung parliament after we go to the polls in May. Before we get there, and we have a special appearance, joining us is Cathy McGowan, formerly the Member of Parliament for Indi, who broke through when she defeated Sophie Mirabella some elections ago. And she's been the inspiration and the mentor for many of the so-called teal independents. But before we get there, we have to address a matter that arose on Anzac Day. Simon, Peter Dutton said on Anzac Day in an interview... The only way you can preserve peace is to prepare for war and to be strong as a country. Is he really just saying that you've got to speak softly but carry a big stick, or is he saying more than that? Well, he's not speaking softly <laughs> to the point, but I think your question's right, or the presumption in your question is right, John, and that I actually think it's a rather trite observation. It's sort of always true. What's interesting is the form of words that Dutton chose to use uh, in the context that we're in. That makes a, a lot of sense. A government that is looking to reclaim national security is one of the arguments for its re-election. It's never quite put, the observation he, he made is never quite put quite the way he put it with the, the form of words to prepare for war. Typically, it's a strong national defence or, or protecting our national security uh, it's the preparing for war line that I think is is what got a lot of uh, tongues wagging on, on this one. Who's he targeting? Who's, who's that aimed at? I think it's aimed at um, marginal voters, particularly in his home state of Queensland, where I think the Solomon Islands issue is perhaps biting a little harder. There's some immediacy to it. But I think there's a demographic, perhaps not in inner metro seats, but particularly in outer metro seats, it's also going to appeal to, I think, to uh, Palmer voters, one uh, United Australia Party voters, who might be disgruntled with the coalition on a number of issues, particularly perhaps um, the the big hand of the of the state in dealing with coronavirus and you know the other arguments that uh, the UAP mounts around privacy and whatnot. But this is an issue that I think will clearly, uh, that constituency, and rather than fight for their second preference, you'd much rather have a first preference up your sleeve. Annika? Yeah, look, I, I totally agree with Simon that I think it really is about reclaiming the, the security policy space and I suppose creating as much of a crisis 
as there can be when this campaign, I suppose, has been uh, not devoid of crises. It's had its fair share of crises, but the government, you know, hasn't had much to say for itself in terms of its own crisis management in the last three years. So we can, you know, um, the relationship with China is one that we're seeing at the moment, but also COVID as a as a as a crisis pandemic. The puff has gone out of that for the coalition in their their arguments, trying to spin that as a, as an emergency that the government saw the country get through. Same for climate change, bushfires. Um, economic security. So these are sort of the traditional crises of security that the government would have relied on. Um, and so this is a, a convenient moment for them. I don't know how much longer it's going to last because it's a difficult policy space. At the moment, it's about the Solomon Islands. But as soon as we move more into to China, I think it becomes problematic for both political parties. Um, and this is something I think we'll probably touch on later in the week when we talk about um, how our different sort of ethnic groups in Australia vote. Is it not? I mean, you're professor of parties for the purposes of this podcast and Carso professor of press and Simon professor of polls. Is it not also, though, about the internals within the Liberal Party? I mean, Peter Dutton's whole political brand has been built on being the kind of, you know, unshakably sort of strongman image. And it's also about looking to what happens after the election and if they lose, whether he can uh, secure numbers against Josh Frydenberg to take on where Scott Morrison has left off. Yes, certainly. I mean, it's always got those those undertones as as well, presuming that uh, the Liberal Party is going to retain retain government. So, look, I think it's it's a that's why I said it's a sort of a problematic policy issue because it is so complex. It speaks to internal party divisions. It speaks to signalling and messaging to to key constituencies, which has trade offs with other constituencies. Um, also, it spoke, speaks to the sort of resourcing of, of politics and some of the, the donations that we've seen from foreign players and the legislation which is, was introduced last year to outlaw some of that. So it is murky territory for both parties. So I, I would say that it's served its purpose so far, but we'll probably see a mo- moving on to other things in the, uh, in the campaign. Interesting, Carso, in terms of media coverage as Professor of Press, it certainly got the Liberal Party away from talking about women in transgender sport and the like, didn't it? I think they like talking about that. Doesn't do them much good, though, does it? Because they're usually defending it rather than using it as a weapon of attack. You're not listening to Sky News, John, clearly. No, I'm not. I'll um, cheerfully I'll, I'll <laughs> confirm that for you. I'd like to pick up on the point Simon made that word prepare and I think this is a risky strategy because you've got um, a lack of preparation when it comes to the submarine deal that fell over the 90 billion with the French deal in that space and that French president has just been re-elected so what preparations has the coalition been doing and the reason I raise this is because it speaks to the area that the ALP is trying to highlight, that they're not prepared, that they have made mistakes and that it has been wasteful. Yeah, it's, a, it's a good point, Andrew. In elevating yeah. this security, security policy space, um, which I agree they're trying to do and previously they have issue ownership of this, it's meant to be an area the coalition looks strong. It's also a little two-edged in showing that, well, if you are meant to be so prepared, what have you prepared? All right. Now, our main topic for today is to talk about the so-called Teal Independence, backed up by the climate activist Simon Holmes Court and a grassroots army, the likes of which we haven't seen. And we have the opportunity to hear firsthand from Cathy McGowan, who's the kind of mentor and inspiration for a lot of this after knocking off Sophie Mirabella in the central Victorian and Murray River District Wodonga-based seat of Indi several elections ago. Now, Simon, you have a, um, a an emerging conflict of interest here, which 
we need, we need to declare. So you're doing some work with these people? I am. I'm crunching some numbers um, for Climate 200. We'll get you to go and sit in the naughty corner for this conversation. We'll come back to you shortly for other things. But, Carso, you caught up with Cathy McGowan as she was in transit earlier in the day. Uh, let's, uh, let's have a listen to Cathy McGowan and see exactly where she thinks the movement, which we can call it now, the movement that she started, where she thinks it's heading. There is an incredible sense across the country of disillusionment with the government. Uh, people are desperate to send a message to certainly the government, but both parties that they're not doing well enough. And the independents are putting their hand up as a very viable alternative. Lists for the candidates were finalised in the last few days. And we can see from those there's a record number of women coming forward as candidates, the highest it's ever been, 39%, and a record number, it would appear, of independents, given that the overall number of parties has fallen. Is this a surprise to you? I think it's an indication of how poorly the government is perceived, in the, and particularly in the regions where I live, the sense of dissatisfaction, of disappointment and disillusionment with both the Libs and the Nats and their government is palpable. The community is saying, look, it's not good enough, and I think in the years past, community have tried to get the parties to be better with little result. So now they're taking things into the, their own hands. Communities are putting up their own candidates and the candidates are very popular, are very, very popular around the country, not only as a place to go for a, a vote to say government not doing enough, but these candidates in many cases are by far a better choice. And why are we seeing so many of the candidates being women that are putting their hands forward and often with no previous political experience? Are you assuming that people who stand for the major parties have got political experience? Well, fair point. Some may have. I don't know the answer to that, but I, I think it probably reflects the appalling processes, particularly in the conservative parties and their treatment of women. It's just a shocker. And the failure of the government to act on so many issues where there's been rampant sexism in the system, I think it's actually a reflection on the National Party and the Liberal Party rather than meaning anything other than, other than that. But certainly the people I see who are running as independents are extraordinarily capable and in most cases are far, by far a better choice than what's on offer from the major parties. In reference to some of the Teal candidates, those that are receiving sponsorship, I guess you could say, from the Climate 200 group, John Howard made some remarks, the former Prime Minister, that they were nothing more than anti-Liberal groupies. Is it fair to categorise independents this way? And are they all in the one basket of just being against the coalition? That Teal candidates... So I think that's a very broad generalisation and to put them all in one category doesn't really work. There are a number of candidates who are wearing the colour teal, but there's orange and pink and yellow and all other colours as well. In fact, I think there's at least 25 that I know community independents running and, and you couldn't group them together. And also you refer to the Climate 200 ones, so there's only a very small number of uh, candidates who actually receive that funding. Uh, and again, putting them in one group, I think, would be a mistake. My, my sense, the, the independents are actually independents and grouping them, as somebody said today, it's a bit like many blokes wear grey suits. Would you put them in the same grouping because blokes wear grey suits and blue ties? Like, probably not. I just cannot imagine Mr Howard using that term. So I suspect someone's given it to him and it's really misused, like you can't be a groupie for a negative, 
and the negative is anti, saying they're anti-liberals, like, well, and also it's such a derogatory term. It doesn't bring to mind the calibre of the people who are actually standing. So I think it was meant to be derogatory. I think it's landed in a very poor place that if he's trying to talk to the people who live in the leafy suburbs of Melbourne and Sydney and calling those candidates groupies, oh, I just think he's missing the mark totally, if, particularly if he's trying to get them to vote Liberal. <laughs> I, I wouldn't be talking to them that way, that's for sure. Uh, how much have you been involved in some of their campaigns and how important is it that they have their a field of volunteers to assist them in lieu of not being part of an established political party? To be effective as a candidate, I think you need three things. You need really strong community support, like you can't win without community support. You need a really competent candidate who's going to front the program and then you need a very professional campaign. So the question is around the country. If there's, I think, 26, I reckon that there's about seven to ten who are going to come really, really close. There's another five or six that will come down to preferences and then there's probably another ten that have done a really good job. They'll make their seats marginal. They'll hold the current member to account. They'll certainly make a difference in the intervening three years. It'll be a big win for democracy having people holding their member of parliament to account and it'll be a huge win for democracy that so many people across the country have actually got involved in these community-based campaigns. A couple of the candidates that have received quite a bit of attention both within the media and uh, with the rival candidates that they're up against is Zoe Daniels in Goldstein, um, the candidate for North Sydney, uh, Wentworth in Sydney as well, and looking at um, Kuyong in Victoria. Are you expecting any of those to get across the line? Oh, look, absolutely. And there's all the regional ones as well. There's Cowper, there's Nichols. Those ones you mentioned are in the cities and they're certainly the major um, mainstream media is sort of paying attention to them. But right across the country, I think in every single one of those 26 electorates that I'm talking about, there's massive battles going on uh, and they're going to be very close. And I don't think the result will be known on election night there's going to be a huge amount of recounting needed to be taken place. So, yeah, I'd be saying to the mainstream media, put your eye out into the country and watch what's going on in some of the regional seats. There's a huge movement across the country. There's a sense that this government has really let the country down. Why would you not agree to a, a Federal Integrity Commission? Why would you not do something about climate? And, 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 and being up front and saying, no, 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 we're not going to do it, is just a, such a failure of governance. And will you be playing a role there, advising on preference flows? No, no, of course not. Um, communities do their own thing and, in, and candidates absolutely do their own thing. But I think there's a, a very strong sense that independents aren't allocating preferences. That's my sense. The parties, the parties are the ones that treat people as if they're a bit stupid, saying, you know, vote one here, vote two there, vote three there. Certainly the ones that I've been talking to and certainly when I was an independent, I said, give me your first vote. Um, and then distribute your preferences as is your choice. Now, if you're right, Cathy, and some of these independents do get through uh, and there is disillusionment with the major parties and we end up in a scenario where there's a balance of power of the independents in the lower house, a situation you're very familiar with, having been in that situation yourself, what sort of considerations um, will be at play and how hard is it for independents to work at each, with each other to arrive at how to manage that balance of power scenario? My sense is that 
good governance is really important. And there are fundamental principles about good governance. We haven't seen a lot of it with this coalition government, I have to say. The infighting in the Liberal Party, well, you know, so let's just talk about that for half a second. Their inability of the New South Wales Liberal Party to get its act together, just absolutely incompetent. So is, is the Liberal Party in any way, shape or form able to, you know, govern well? No, probably not. The National Party, I don't think, is much better. So it depends what you're trying to compare things with. Would independence be better? Certainly from the calibre of the people I know running as independents, without a, with beyond a shadow of a doubt, there are some outstandingly skilled, competent people who have had enormous life experience of um, getting things done, bringing teams together, getting um, outcomes that work for everybody. Their governance, if nothing else, will be a huge improvement. So the balance of power was was not a really... I know everybody makes a big thing of it, but really my whole time in Parliament was about working together, working across the differences, understanding what my uh, electorate needed. I hate the thought that you actually would do deals and you'd sell your vote. And, and talking to people on the crossbench, for example, Andrew Wilkie, he says he, he just would not do that. He did it once and it didn't work, that you need to look at every single piece of legislation on its merits. And that's what I'd be if I was asked, and certainly what I did when I was there, vote according, to one, to my conscience, two, what was good for my electorate, three, what was good for the country. And I think um, independence would be very well advised not to get caught up in thinking that if I do a deal... I'm going to get a good outcome because then that takes away from their ability to actually look at every bit of legislation on its merits and vote accordingly. And if you are on the crossbench, which is very different from the parties, you, every vote is a conscience vote. And, and I think that gives um, communities and constituents great comfort to know that their Member of Parliament hasn't done a deal, that there's no, that there's no unknown funding source, that the Member of Parliament is actually dancing to the, the strings of somebody else. If you've got an independent member of parliament, you can take great comfort. Their first and highest allegiance is to their electorate, not to a party, not to a faction, and not to some other body who might be funding them. And Andrea Carson recorded that interview with Cathy McGowan a short while before we started our podcast. Uh, let's subject that to some scrutiny. I thought the most astonishing thing that came out of that is she says seven to 10 of the Teal independents will come close, which would mean you could have on the crossbench anything between 13 and 16 crossbenches. You've got six now, Wilkie, Haynes, Stegall, Catter, Bant and Sharkey, all of whom are likely on most projections to be returned. If you get seven or 10 more, 13 to 16 on the crossbench, how do you wrangle and how do you deal with 13 or 16 independent members of parliament if indeed, as Cathy McGowan says, they deal with every single piece of legislation according to their conscience or what they believe their electorate want of them, Annika? How do you wrangle that, 13 to 16 of them? <laughs> well, it would certainly be an, an, a, quite an effort and it would be fairly unprecedented in Australian politics to have to have that number. Look, where I sort of disagree with Cathy a little bit is in generalising about these independents. And I think that there is actually a fair bit that you can generalise with these candidates. And it does go to your question, John, about how you deal with them once they're in the parliament. And the first thing I'd say is that, I mean, what does tend to unite many of the people who are currently running as independents, and Cathy said it herself, is a, is a focus on 
on governance and the sorts of issues that traditionally have been difficult to get legislative change on, given that both major parties have been in alignment on them. So the Corruption Commission is a, is a key one here and also electoral funding reform. But in Australian politics, there always has been a space for um, candidates and, and voters who are socially progressive, environmentally conscious, but I suppose economically centrist or conservative. So is it just the Democrats reinvented? Are we going back to that? There is a lot of similarities in this, and the Democrats themselves were quite a sort of a unique bunch of, of individuals. They were ultimately, you know, their their demise was due to individual um, conflict and difference in, in personality. And I can see sort of if we took the independents as a group, many of many sort of similarities emerging in the way that they would operate. So I think they you could lump them together, or not lump them, but you could sort of categorise them in a similar way. And I think that if we did have a number that were um, elected to Parliament, these are the sorts of issues that we would see being pushed forward as a result of that independent force. All right, Professor of Press Carso, um, the Murdoch media are gunning for them and their, their novelty value works in some media and the, the fact that they're almost certainly likely to be backing a Labor, a change of government, a Labor administration on integrity and climate if they in fact do hold the balance of power. But what's happening on social media with their profiles? Are they succeeding on some of those disaggregated platforms that now are so influential? The ones that I've been looking at, John, have been doing a terrific job on social media and part of this is because I've got Cathy McGowan advising them behind the scenes. You might remember in 2016 when Cathy won the seat of Indi, she was very effective on social media. And, and even though a lot of the people in um, her country region are not necessarily on social media, she was able to amass a big collection of volunteers which grew with each election through that social me media presence. And... A similar thing's happening with some of these independents. For example, Zoe Daniel had over a 1,000 volunteers that um, have been donning the teal T-shirt. She had over a 1,000 people turn up to her launch. And being an ex-journalist... By way of contrast, a typical political campaign in, say, Goldstein, what would you have, 20, 30 volunteers helping out, maybe 50 people turning up to a launch, most of whom are friends and family? Yeah, probably right. And maybe even less if you're a coalition and your uh, supporters are small business owners, they're busy running their own businesses. They can't be there in the middle of the day handing out uh, or knocking on doors and door knocking. And a big part of these campaigns is field campaigning. They're knocking on doors. In fact, one um, post from the candidate said that, I think it was Allegra Spenders had already had 27,000 doors knocked. So that's a lot of people, given most electorates are about 100,000 houses. Sure, Cheney and Curtin's doing the same thing as well. To what extent, though, are these volunteers what used to be dismissively and patronisingly called and dismissed as the doctor's wives segment of the community? I remember in Higgins, that was the way the Liberal Party, the assault on Higgins was, oh, that's the doctor's wives vote, which is an appalling way of describing, in fact, a, a disenfranchised segment of mostly women who feel that the parties aren't speaking to them. Well, I think Cathy made a good point here, and that is that there's a lot of disenchantment there. And the fact that so many of these independents are women gives women another place to have their visibility and have their vote um, felt and heard. So I wouldn't be dismissive at all, the doctor's wives. That might end up being the 
um, strength of, of the independents, that they'll get um, women supporters and they might also get youth supporters because, as Annika was saying, um, one of the keys to the commonality of the candidates is good corporate governance. It's also climate change. Yep. And we've got a record number of young people that are on the electoral roll this time round, up around 85%. And so if they're not um, swayed by the major parties, they might be looking to park their vote with the independents. I'd be interested to hear what Simon's got to say about the way the vote gets counted and how that gets disrupted with independents. Simon? Cathy had this great line about election night itself that we, we won't know the result in some of these seats. And that's because I think the results are going to be close in some of these seats. The election itself may not be close. So I, I don't know about that just yet. But certainly in some seats, in some of the seats we're talking about, I don't know that we'll know the result on the night. And in particular, there's this very odd quirk um, that happens on election night in Australia where the Electoral Commission has to make a guess as to who the final two candidates are going to be and and direct uh, each polling place to do a two-candidate preferred indicative count under the assumption that the two that they've picked are the uh, final two, sometimes the electoral commission gets that gets that wrong, and it means they're counting they're making the wrong two candidate preferred count. Lots of these will be three way contests, won't they? That's right. But who will be the final two? Yeah. Right. And that's the point, right? Because they are three way contests. Knowing who the final two will be for when we get down to the final exchange of preferences, uh, the final distribution of preferences. That's what it's about. They're called maverick seats in the trade, um, and they drive Anthony Green crazy, and they will drive the rest of us crazy um, on election night. And I suspect we're going to have quite a few of those, and perhaps coming out of these seats already, we've got 15, 16 seats uh, last time that were so-called non-classic contests, where we didn't have a a straight-up, a a lib, labor, two-party preferred contest, or one that was predictably so. I suspect that number could even be larger this time and um, it will make for a long election night and perhaps a, a long couple of election days And if we've got uh, of counting after the election and if we've got a hung parliament, well, we remember how that went down last time. We're running out of time as we always do and we've got a cracker coming up for you next time on Below the Line when we're going to look at the so-called ethnic vote. Does it actually exist? And if so, how do you try and and wrangle with it? So that's coming up next time. But before we finish today, the candidate lists have just been released. Annika, Carso, you've both had a chance to crunch some of these numbers. A record number of women, Carso, a project you've been working on for years. Yeah, that's right, John. It's up to 39%. There's always fewer women than men that are nominating, but as a proportion of women compared to past elections, it's gone up from 32% at the last election in 2019 to 39 this time. And part of that is because we're seeing this surge of independence um, and probably coming out of some of the other smaller parties as well. Annika? Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point that Andrew has made is that we've got a lot of women, but uh, we'll come back to you in another podcast about how many of those are actually running for the major parties. Uh, I think I've said previously on this podcast that voters don't discriminate against women, political parties do, and those are the major parties. So we may see more women elected, but it'll be the independents. And a lot of the parties pre-select women into seats they don't expect to win, so they can boost then the numbers of candidates running, but not the numbers in that actually end up 
representing the electorates. Yeah, they don't put them in unwinnable seats, but they don't put them in winnable seats either. Safe They're seats, much yeah. more on the fence about, yeah. Yeah. Before we fully leave this, there was a bit of a panic last week about, oh, young people aren't enrolled to vote. In fact, huge numbers enrolled to vote within the last 48 hours. Do we know why that happened? Was it a social media campaign? Was it viral? Was it just a grassroots thing? Has anyone got any handle on why that happened? In some states, you've got automatic enrolment, which has been trialled in the last few years. And I know Victoria is one of those. So they line up your your card certificate with your electoral address and automatically place you on the roll. The other thing is the AEC's run a pretty strong campaign on social media, imploring young people to get on the electoral roll. In the past, Facebook's come on board with that and has uh, really ratcheted up the algorithm to make sure that that AEC message gets out. And that was really effective in 2016 and 2019. All right, Simon. You do get a surge of an of enrolments um, and and the first timers, it's very exciting. I remember my first time voting. I won't tell you which election, but the AEC also its own internal research tells us there is a bit of a drop in, in the, that second election or the third election or the fourth election through your twenties. There is a, a slight drop off in in participation. The AEC is doing a better job at tracking people as they move now, so that's holding that down. It's had the paradox though of actually lowering our turnout figures because the AEC is doing a better and better job of scooping people onto the roll. It's just that they're scooping up people who on the margin have a lower propensity to vote. So Australia's turnout numbers as a proportion of those enrolled has fallen down to closer to 90% than 94, 95% than where it used to be. Um, But nonetheless, um, they are making it incredibly easy to get on the roll, which is half the battle. Um, and and Australia does a better job of that than almost anywhere in the world. Annika, one of the really interesting things to come out of the French election is that although Marine Le Pen, the far-right, even neo-fascist candidate, got only 42 or 43% of the vote, amongst young voters, she got over 50% of the vote. So it's not an automatic... We make the assumption younger voters are more progressive. Uh Uh-uh, not in France, they weren't. No, not necessarily. I mean, it is it is dependent on the national context. So here, John, I think that there are a couple of things that are driving this sort of youth enrolment beyond all of the um, the sort of procedural things that Andrea and Simon spoke about. And the first is young people are probably not as politically disengaged as we think they are, and there could well be a shift in that. And then the second thing, I think that there are a couple of issues that are igniting young people. Climate change here and also cost of living insofar as it sort of relates to the casualisation of of work and, and employment and underemployment in that context. So these are issues that matter for young people and it's probably mobilising them to get out and enrol. I'd add gender equality to that, Annika, but I think you've absolutely hit the nail on the head about this cycle. There is certainly some things in the ether, uh, two or three big issues in particular, that I think speak very ardently uh, to, to, to younger voters. And I'd throw home ownership in there as well in that cost of living stuff. Well, it's been absolutely fascinating yet again. Now, next time on Below the Line, is there such a thing as a cohesive ethnic vote? And if it's been counted adequately and courted by the major parties, and if so, who connects to it best? So that's what we'll look at next. If you've enjoyed this podcast, you may also enjoy Michelle Grattan's interviews with political players and experts presented by The Conversation Australia. And you can listen and subscribe just by searching Politics with Michelle Grattan on The Conversation Australia or your podcast app. Today's Below the Line has brought you Cathy McGowan, the former member, independent member of parliament for Indi, and thank you to Cathy for her time. 
I'm John Fain. I'm a Vice-Chancellor's Fellow at the Uni of Melbourne. Professors Anika Gallier and Simon Jackman from the University of Sydney and Associate Professor Andrea Carson at La Trobe University. Producers are Courtney Carthy and Benjamin Clark, and we'll speak to you again in a couple of days. Below the Line, the Federal Election 2022. Brought to you by La Trobe University with The Conversation. Mr Howard called me to offer his congratulations. The people have spoken, but it's going to take a little while to determine exactly what they've said. You obviously enjoyed hearing it, so let me say it again. The Government of Australia has changed. We have every confidence that we will form a coalition majority government. I have always believed in miracles. Yeah.